Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. This is Jeff Fedoten with Believe in Chiefs on the Believe Podcast Network, Kansas City's number one sports podcast network. The only place with a show for every team in KC and more. We believe in our teams. Do you believe? On this week's show, former Chiefs offensive lineman Joe Valerio and I uh, discuss uh, Mitchell Schwartz and some other offseason goings on. Uh, Joe, I, I got a chance to speak with uh, Mitchell Schwartz uh, over the phone, uh, and obviously he's he's uh, still doing the virtual meetings and practices, but that's that's really and working out a lot, but that's only about you know two hours a, a day. So with all this free time during quarantine and not being able to leave, he's really indulging in his passion of cooking. Uh, he is a, even has a weekly segment uh, the Chiefs are promoting uh, on their social media called Mitch in the Kitchen. And he's, you know, he's really an impressive chef. He, he may do something with it down the line uh, after his football career. Um, he said he was very bummed that he missed out. He he's great at grilling, and the guys loved it. And the office lineman used to come over uh, on the first night of the draft to to enjoy uh, that, and also football kickoff weekend for college football. So that's up there. I'll, hopefully, we can get back to it at that point, but never know. Uh, so, Joe, I was wondering, as a as another lineman, if you had similar uh, food experiences to to Mitchell Schwartz at all. Well, number one, Jeff, it's would you expect anything less of an offensive lineman to be a great chef and to be able to cook, <laughs> right? Um, for me, it happens to be Italian food, right? Growing up uh, in an Italian family and watching my grandmother in the kitchen and then watching my parents in the kitchen, like, you know, I can get around when it comes just because, you know, just because what you're used to, right? And And you live in Kansas City and man, barbecue is going to rub off on you. Right. And, and it certainly has for Mitchell and it's, it's been really fun to watch. I follow him on Instagram and I, I see some of the food that he cooks on his grill and I'm just like, I, I can't not be hungry whenever I'm right. scrolling through Instagram and I can't catch Mitch's uh, Instagram posts. So they're a lot of fun to watch and it's really been fun to watch and to see his passion for food come out, you know, of course with the, with the off season, the way it's going and people being able to indulge in their hobbies a little bit, it's really fantastic. Living in Kansas city. I, Man, I could crush some barbecue when it came to um, eating it. <laughs> Cooking it, not so good. Jeff, I was in a barbecue contest once. Um, and, uh, you know, here I was, this you know, Italian kid from like, quote, South Philly, you know, South Philadelphia, trying to do barbecue. And I actually, and I'm, I'm, I'm not proud of it, but I'm not also ashamed to say that I won the, the Burnt Boot Award uh, for making the steak that like got the worst rating. So, it, it took a long time for me to get my barbecue grilling skills down. Um, You're on the you know, opposite having, spectrum of Mitchell I was Schwartz. sort of on the, uh, you know, and I can totally respect what he does with barbecue. You know, I've gotten a lot better over the years, but man, when I was younger in my younger days and living in Kansas City, you know, barbecue was not my thing. I, man, could I put it away? And did I really develop a taste for, for Kansas City barbecue? It's It's my favorite barbecue. I've lived in you know, other parts of the country lived in the South for a little while and had some Southern barbecue. I've tasted Texas barbecue and what we try to think of as barbecue up here, you know, in the, in the uh, Philadelphia area, except when you go to John Brown smokehouse, you know, in, in <laughs> Queens, you get some great Kansas City barbecue. But um, I personally, um, you know, uh, have gotten better. F 
food was always important, right, as an offensive lineman because you're always looking for ways to eat. And Dave Zott was usually my eating buddy because we were always on the underweight side, right? So Dave and I used to have to pack it away to keep mm-hmm. above our minimum weight, right? Other guys were, were fighting off their maximum, and Dave and I were fighting off the minimum weight allowance uh, that we were supposed to be. But, you know, we I had some fun food experiences in Kansas City that, that were uh, probably unique to being a, you know, a football player and being the part of the Chiefs organization. And the, the thing that I loved most about it was the diversity of food that you would experience as a teammate, right? Um, I had never really, until I went and, you know, spent that season with the Birmingham Fire, I'd never really spent a lot of time in the South, right? And, and so Southern cooking wasn't something that was really something that we ate a lot of growing up. It was, you know, mostly Italian, you know, mostly Italian food and just sort of uh, whatever the things you find in, in the Northeast. But I, and I wasn't really a Southern cooking person. And then, um, you know, living in Birmingham and being part of the Birmingham Fire. And then also when Neil Smith, when we went down to play New Orleans, uh, Neil hosted the team and a bunch of guys over to his house and his mom made us a real Southern cooking meal. And it was fantastic. I was like, I couldn't believe the things I was eating, things I'd only like read about in books or whatever. And, you know, here I was eating all this great, you know, Southern, like real, I mean, like real southern cooking and it was fantastic right so gained a real appreciation for, for that for neil because he used to he used to have a, a restaurant in kansas city i think it was copeland's was the name of it that you know new orleans style gumbo and all that stuff so i'm sure his mom was helping him out because she was <laughs> fantastic cook i mean she was a great i mean she the food was fantastic and then you know like going on the road you know that was always fun because what I loved about the Chiefs organization was like, it was always so familial, right? It was always such a family thing. Like I remember my fav- some of my favorite trips were going out to the West Coast and playing, um, uh, you know, playing the Chargers, right? And Dan Salamua's family didn't live very far from San Diego. So, you know, they would bring these unbelievable Polynesian cookouts, you know, oh, wow. pig with the, with the apple in the mouth and all the great stuff that you see in like either Hawaiian or Samoan type, uh, you know, feasts. And those were always fun. Uh, I remember uh, Louis Aguiar's uh, parents made us an unbelievable uh, Mexican food spread when, mm. when we went and played close to where they lived. And, you know, that was always so much fun um, to go and to, to test out, you know, different cuisines in, in different parts of the country whenever we were traveling, especially post-game at the tailgates. It was, it was always so much fun. So food, you know, obviously a part of an NFL player's lifestyle. You're trying to maintain weight, right? You don't really have a whole lot of restrictions from a calorie intake because you're burning so many calories. Mm-hmm. So food becomes, you know, food becomes an important part of, you know, your, your training regimen. And, you know, you obviously want to do it right. You want to eat right. You don't want to get too heavy or eat the wrong kind of foods to, to damage your, your health. But it really is an important part of an NFL player's uh, sort of, staying staying you know in tune with with uh with the weight that you need to keep up because you know you're burning so many calories when you're out there totally um and obviously a big part of mitchell schwartz's um life a big passion he said how actually pizza is his favorite thing to make and he's really into neapolitan style he said it you know it's really a several day uh, process as far as making the dough, he'll make it and oh, then yeah. put it, uh, let it ferment for uh, 72 hours. But uh, of course, on the field, Mitchell Schwartz is one of the best linemen uh, in the NFL. 
probably the best lineman in the Chief, on the Chiefs. He was so long without missing a game. What makes him such an elite player, just physically and uh, is it technique? Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, Jeff, I think the thing to that we're going to have to fix is the Neapolitan thing. Uh, you know, if you come <laughs> to New York – priorities right we've got to start priority if you, if you if you come to philadelphia or new york it's nabaldana okay so like you know you got to say <laughs> oh <"Nabaldana." my> <laughs> right so that's that's definitely not an attribute if 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 mitchell's pronouncing it neapolitan and uh, that's not adding to his attributes on the field uh no but all all, all kidding aside you know nabaldana so uh but now glad we got that straight now though yeah, yeah, we just want to make sure we get that straight. He, he's look, look, Mitchell Schwartz is number one. He's Dorimore, right? And that goes, you know, above and beyond. You know, the streak that he had with the number of games that he had played. Um, durability in this league will set you apart. You know, day one, right? If you if you're durable and you can stay out on the field, because what are you doing when you're out on the field and you're durable? You're gaining experience. You're not missing snaps. You play with an unbelievable amount of confidence. So number one, I think his durability really sets him apart because, you know, look, you're in the NFL, you know, he's six foot five, he's 315 pounds. There's a lot of six foot five, 315 pound linemen. There's a lot of six foot five, 315 pound tackles that have the same dimensions that he does and have, you know, good athletes. But, you know, it's those little intangible things to me that really set the great ones apart from the good ones and the average ones, right? And for me, when I look at Mitchell Schwartz, I see you know, a real durability, right? When you look back at the, at the great ones that the Chiefs have had, okay, let's go through them. John Alt, you know, teens of years. I can't remember how many years John played, 13, 14, you know, never missed any games. Will Shields, unbelievable streaks of, of games played. Tim Grunhard, Dave Zott, like Brian Waters. You go through the linemen that have had unbelievable careers, and what's the first thing you think of? The Anthony Munozes of the world, right? These Hall of Fame, it's their durability. It's their ability to stay out on the field, gain all that experience that you can't teach in a classroom. You can't learn in the training room if you're not out there playing, if you're hurt, because you're not playing with that kind of confidence. So I think, you know, that's one of those little things that maybe people might not think about when it comes to a lineman's ability to be great and to move above good. And then he does obviously have the – he has long arms. He has tremendous feet. He never gets himself in a bad position. And when Mitchell gets himself in a bad position, and it happens to everybody, even the best of them, the best of the best of the best are going to get caught unawares and their feet are going to get crossed up, he has an ability to react and to recover. That is something that not every offensive lineman has. They don't have that ability to react and recover when they get caught in an, in a bad situation, which which we all do. We all did. Linemen always do. It's you know, every position does, right? A, a, a D back gets beat, you know, he gets his feet crossed. Uh, you know, a linebacker gets caught up in the wash of the line, and he has to recover. And you think about the great ones. You think about the ones that were ability had the ability to to set themselves apart and be an integral part of of you know of the line. It comes down to being able to recover and react because that's what I think he does a little bit differently and a little bit better than, than most linemen and has gotten him the accolades and the all pro honors and, mm. you know, all that stuff. I think it's his, it's his, it's his ability to, to recover um, because, you know, you're going against 
think about some of the defensive ends and the defensive tackles that, and the, and, the, and the rush ends and the rush linebackers that he goes against and what kind of athletic ability they have. If, if, you know, if you can't, if you can't recover, cause they're going to put you in bad situations, right? They're going to, that's their sole job. You know, going against Derek Thomas every day for six years was like the body positions that he would put me in. I, I sometimes he would twist me around like a pretzel. <laughs> and the things that I learned is I learned how to recover from that because I was never going to beat him physically, right? I was never going to, I didn't have the athletic ability that he had and, and most people didn't. And unless you learn how to react to what he's doing and then recover when they put you in that bad situation, that's what I think sets Mitchell apart. You know, look, he's 6'5", he's 3'15". There's a lot of great 6'5", 315 linemen in the league. Durability and the ability to recover. That athletic ability, that, that overall athleticism to be able to recover from bad situations, I think is what sets him apart. And, and I think why he's had such, such great success. And he's, he's a lineman that I think if you're a, if you're a youth tackle, <laughs> you should be watching Mitchell Schwartz play. Because I think he's, um, he's the kind of the model of what you would want to look like and how you would want to play out on the field. Because, you know, he's, he's also got a nice, you know, when he's on the field, he's a super nice guy, obviously, as most NFL players are. But, you know, he also has a little bit of a nasty streak out on mm-hmm. the field. You know, he has that ability to turn it on and turn it off, which is, uh, which is another unique skill. You mentioned that durability. And just to further illustrate it, so it was almost, it was basically over eight seasons, or in other words, 7,894 consecutive offensive That's snaps. Just amazing. Uh, and you were talking about his read and react, and that's really a skill. What, what makes a lineman good at read and reacting? Is it quick feed? Is it agility? Is it like tell, tell our listeners uh, yeah, how, how Schwartz it's, it's, is so good at read and reacting? I think when, I think when scouts and, and personnel people are looking at linemen, you know, again, the, the, you know, every lineman that goes to the combine, every major sort of draft uh, eligible lineman that comes out of college, you don't get to play at those schools that get attention. You don't get attention unless you have certain physical attributes, right? Because if you're six foot five, let's, let's, let's take the typical prototypical tackle at this point, right? Which I think most people can really associate with the prototypical tackle that you see in the NFL these days. They're generally somewhere between 6'5 and 6'7. And they generally weigh somewhere between 305 to say 320 pounds, right? That's if you had to take, if you lump them all into a big, you know, pot and you said, okay, let's, let's take the average, let's look at some of these average attributes. That's what you'd probably see, right? You, and, and you, unless you get to that point, you probably don't, you're, you're outside the bell curve and, and you're, you're not going to get a shot to play in the NFL if you're not mm-hmm. somewhere between 6'4 and 6'7 and right. weigh over 300 pounds. And, and then there has to be a certain amount of athletic ability, right? You have to, especially at the tackle position, right? When you're inside, I used to call it being inside the bumpers. And when I was coaching offensive linemen, you know, you, the, the players in the interior, you have, you have boundaries, right? Guards learn how to use each other uh, or guards learn how to use their, their teammates space between the center and the tackle. And they can, they have bumpers, right? And that's what I used to call it. Like you've got these bumpers, you've got these, these guardrails, so to speak, and centers, the ultimate, right? You've got, mm-hmm. you got it four guys, two on each side of you to use as guardrails. Like there's old bumper lanes of bowling, right? Yeah, exactly. It's like bowl. It's like bowling with bumpers, right? When you're playing tackle, no bumpers. There's no bumpers, right? You, you, it's you on the edge 
with the Frank Clarks of the world, right? Go back to my days, the Leslie O'Neills, the Rufus Porters, the Derek Thomases of the world. It's you and them out in space. Yeah, occasionally, you know, you're going you're gonna to somehow, you know, get uh, some help from your guard next to you. But what really good defensive coordinators do is they learn how to single up those players. Mm-hmm. They learn how to put Frank Clark, you know, and, 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 and in my days, the Derek Thomases, they learn defensive schemes to keep that guard from helping on Derek Thomas so that the tackle was one-on-one with him. And, you know, so there's, there's a next level of athletic ability that you have to watch when you're watching these players and trying to develop them. And it's generally going to be, and we talked about the durability, we'll, we'll put that aside for now because you, you always want to hope for that. But if you were training a lineman, a, a tackle like a Mitchell Schwartz, you're, you're looking for feet. You're looking for the ability to have things slow down which is an, an, that's an innate skill. It's, it's really hard to teach that. And it was probably coming from the Ivy League, it was probably my biggest struggle um, as a player and probably why I never really broke into that everyday starting lineup because, and I, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm readily willing to admit that part of it is that for me, the game, I could never get the game to fully slow down because I was trained in a world where I was at that top end of the speed and the players that I was going against through, you know, my career, I never had a chance to develop that sort of slow motion. I call it, I used to, you know, try to teach Lyman to try to get the game to slow down Mm -hmm. for you. And I think Mitch Schwartz probably has, you know, I don't know whatever you want to call it. I think we talked about it uh, on another another pod where we were saying how it's like when, when sometimes you see flies and bees and insects who have such a high metabolism, everything in the world happens for them really slowly. That's why you can't kill them. That's why when you swat your hand at a bee, they just fly, you know, they can fly away. Because they just see things so much more slowly than humans do. And I think that's a gift that, that a guy like Mitch Schwartz has is his ability to see things slow down. So for me to block Derek Thomas versus John Alt blocking Derek Thomas. We may have been in that same band of physical attributes, but John saw Derek a lot, walk, working a lot more slowly than I did. So for me, Derek was going a thousand miles an hour. For John Alt, maybe he was only going a hundred miles an hour because he had some kind of an innate ability to slow the game down, which I think comes from some skills that you have that are built into you, but I think they're also come from you from repetition over time in that playing at Iowa, John Alt always played against somebody at least a little bit like Derek mm-hmm. Thomas. And he was able to kind of grow into that. So it's a little bit of, you know, a little bit of both. And, and I think that's what, you know, kind of when you look at the prototypical tackle, they have that, they have that, that footwork and that ability to slow, slow things down. Cause you know, you have to. That's a great description of it, Joe. And we certainly, you would bet on Mitchell Schwartz's durability that he's going to continue to play. You'd also bet on his cooking, maybe a little less so you're not, on Joe Valerio's cooking. I was going to say, you're not betting on my steaks. Don't, don't do that for sure. <laughs> well, while you're waiting this one out at home, you can still have some fun betting with our partner, betonline.ag. No NBA, NHL, or MLB, but don't worry. BetOnline still has hundreds of games, events, and sports to wager on. NASCAR is back. Madden and NBA 2K simulations are around. It's UFC, online casino with poker and blackjack. And be sure to check out the final dance, which is the roundtable interview with former Bulls, Horace Grant, Bill Cartwright, Craig Hodges, and Ron Harbour as they discuss 
The Last Dance, the Michael Jordan documentary that we all watch. There's still fun to be had, so go to betonline.ag and use the promo code MYPOD100 to receive your welcome bonus on your first deposit. Again, that's betonline.ag and use the promo code MYPOD100. Uh, Joe, something else I uh, wanted to uh, mention here because it's kind of interesting and it applies to the Chiefs a little bit. Uh, The competition committee is looking at certain uh, rule changes and things for next year. One of them they've talked about with because of the new um, changes to increase safety on changing things like the onside kick, that's resulted in very few uh, changes in position on an onside kick. So they're looking at doing a maybe like a fourth and 15 option uh, to uh, kind of change position. What, what do you think of that uh, proposed rule? Yeah, I, I, li- I like it. I like it. I, let me, I'm, I don't mean to, to just want to back up for one second on that comment, Jeff, because I, I think it is I think it is time for the for the NFL to really look at safety because what the NFL does, everybody else will follow. Right. And it will it will trickle all the way down to youth sports. Number one, just just to throw it out there, I think they need to get rid of the kickoff return. I really do. I, I, I think it's for the excitement that you get out of it. Um, I think they should eliminate the kickoff. And I think just at a change of possession for score, if you started on the 25 yard line, I think it would just, it would, it would, it would change. It would change the way that football is played because, you know, I was for just, just for goofing around once. I remember um, my daughter actually works for a concussion specialist. She does research for a, a, con- a youth pediatric concussion mm-hmm. doctor who's, who's an orthopedist by trade, but also does, enormous and tremendous amount of work um, with the, with the Philadelphia youth uh, and sports and concussions and a lot of research just, just was awarded like a $5 million grant to continue her, her work in, in youth and pediatric concussions. So really excited about where the world is going with that. And when my daughter started getting involved in that, I started meeting a lot of her colleagues and things and talking through some of, some of these things and, you know, have, have, have read up a lot of the stuff that Chris Nowinski's work and things like that. And, and Dr. Tina Master is the, is, is the doctor I'm talking about at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. And her team does an amazing job. And I just started thinking, you know, what are, what are ways we could make the game safer? Why don't we do the kickoff return? And I went back and I looked at the data and I'm so sorry that I don't have the, the actual data, but there was, I'll just, I'm just going to say this. There was definitely a significant amount of, of um, not touchdowns or not big returns when it came to kickoff returns. So, you know, you kick the ball off, you know, if, if, if you're lucky to get it not going into the end zone, right, where you can actually have a legitimate return and you receive it on the, you know, let's call it the negative one yard line to, you know, most kickers can get it at least past the 10, right? So, you, you're, you know, most kickoff returns are happening when the receiver gets the ball somewhere a yard into the end zone or maybe around the 10 yard line. The average starting position is like the twenty-five, and yeah, so there was I, I think talking a huge difference anyhow, right? Jeff, there were thousands of returns. I think my daughter and I looked at like the two thousand seventeen and two thousand eighteen season, and we were looking at all the kickoff returns and how many touchdowns were actually recorded off of those off of those thousands of, and it was like in it was in the single digits or low double digits was the number of actual kickoff returns for touchdowns during those seasons it's just not worth it. it. It's not worth it. You know, yes, it's exciting when you see a kickoff return, you know, go break one for a touchdown and it can be a game changer, 
but I think it's an easy way statistically just to eliminate it. And I think people wouldn't even miss a beat. I really do. I, I really think, I don't think they would miss a beat. And another option too, is they're not looking at it for this coming season, but I, I could see it going to defect at some point. The XFL had kind of an interesting rule where they, uh, the, the kickoff team would kind of wait a bit. So there wasn't quite the same collision where there is now. I could see them adopting that yeah. or like you said, eventually getting Just rid of eliminate it. So, so that's kind of a segue into what you were saying as far as the, the onside kick. Mm-hmm. Is, again, let's look at the statistics, right? Statistically, how many times do you see an onside kick get returned? You know, or get even get recovered, I should say, by the, by, the, by the team who's trying the onside kick. It's so rare, right? It's so rare. So if you want a team who's down by two scores to have a shot and to feel like the game is not completely out of reach, Give them the fourth and 15, right? Let them, but do it, I would say, do it way back to try to, you know, to disincentivize them from just trying, trying it. Because think about it, if any team was down by two scores at a certain time in the game, they're trying it, right? Mm-hmm. Because they have nothing to lose, right? They're going to they're gonna try it, right? Um, if you're down by one score, and depending on the time, you still might kick, you still might kick it or if in that in this particular instance, if you don't have a kickoff, you know um, you would you would try the onside kick because that's why the the um, you know the league that was was last spring and I can't apologies for not remembering the name of the league, the American Football Federation or would you remember it lasted like a I, I know what you're years. talking about, but it, with all these upstarts who unfortunately quickly, I can't, I can't remember. It, it's they had that rule because they were they were elim- they were eliminating the kickoff, but then they mm-hmm. said, well, if you eliminate if you eliminate the kickoff, then how do you do an onside kick? And that's what they were doing the same thing. They were trying the fourth and whatever, but they were putting them back on like their own like 15 yard line, right? So who if you don't if let's say you are down by one score and you're on the fence about kicking it or you're on the fence about, you know, turning the ball over to the other team thinking, well, if we make three stops and we have a couple timeouts, all right, let's just give them the ball and we won't try the onside. I think to disincentivize just the random use of the onside, we'll call it the onside try or whatever. um, You got to push them really far back because if you don't get it right, it's fourth and 15 on your own 10 Ooh man! Like, if yeah. you don't get it, you're sunk. Right? right. That's then it. Like, then it becomes a gamble. It's, it's over. The game's over at that point. So I, I, I like it actually. I think it it makes it more exciting at the end of a game, um, especially if you were to eliminate the kickoff. So that's why I tried to tie that in because it, it kind of goes hand in hand. Totally. And we're going to take a brief pause here and then come back to our podcast. I haven't really woken up. Until I've had my McDonald's breakfast deal. And I know this is true because before breakfast, I put my phone in the refrigerator and couldn't find the keys that were already in my hand. Nothing gets the morning going like the first sip of an iced coffee. Get any size and any flavor for 99 cents until 11 a.m. Price and participation may vary. McDonald's. I'm loving it. You know, that, that rule would be particularly uh, beneficial to the Chiefs. I mean, and we all remember the, we're talking about the fourth and 15 uh, proposal instead of onside kicks. We all remember the Super Bowl when the Chiefs kind of turned the game around when Mahomes converted a third and 15 on the mm-hmm. wasp play to uh, Tyree Kill. So on third and 15 or longer last season, Mahomes was 13 of 17 for 299 yards and three touchdowns. Just 
amazing numbers. So that's why I like the idea. But not only do I think, Joe, that they, they need to push them back a little uh, farther for what you said to, you know, otherwise that there's not much of a gamble. I think they should make it like a fourth and 20 or fourth and 25. I mean, I think in this day and age, fourth and 15 is a little bit too easy with the way the passing rules are already, you know, in favor of the offense. Yeah, especially if, especially if, because let me tell you, there's not many teams who have a fourth and 15 in their playbook right mm-hmm. now. So it would take a year to develop. And then what's going to end up happening is, you know, inevitably you got a lot of bright minds in the NFL, a lot of off- offensive coordinators, they're going to come up with a whole playbook of fourth and 15 plays mm-hmm. and, 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 and to, to have a team like focus on it. So you're right. Maybe, maybe you make it a little bit more of a gamble fourth and 20, man, that, that would be tough. Right. Cause then, cause then, then you're almost playing like prevent defense, right. At right. that point. Um, and uh, you know, it, it's, um, you know, you, and, and if you back them up towards their own end zone, you, you don't allow a quarterback too much room to, 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 to be flying around. Like if you, if let's say they did it from the 20, you know, that gives the, that gives the quarterback 20 yards behind them to run around and scramble and, and make something absolutely crazy happen. Right. Where if you put them back on like fourth and ten, fourth and, and 15 or fourth and 20 on their own 10, who, cause now you're really, you're really tight back there mm-hmm. and you can't, you know, Patrick Mahomes isn't going to be just running around like crazy trying to, you know, find a, a, a heave, right, and, and let the defense break down. So, yeah, there's some – I think there's some there's some fine lines that they'd have to work out. I, You know, maybe that's what the preseason for. Test it out. Test it out in the first two preseason games. See how it goes, you know. Um, you know, try it out. But offensive coordinators will come up with a fourth and 15 play that I think they would have – they would start getting into that Patrick Mahomes success rate right, if you let right. if exactly. you give all these That's bright right. minds uh, enough. As you time. said, they, they need some disincentives as far as uh, being pretty far back yardage wise, or my idea of of having it uh, pretty far distance. Well, so we'll see what happens with that. And I yeah. love your idea of of testing out some of the stuff in the preseason. Uh, they actually uh, another thing that they had talked about was the sky judge, uh, kind of somebody overseeing the actions of the referee, and that that's what they tried yeah. that in the preseason. So. Well, yeah, and they did that in that in that American Football League or whatever it was. Right. They they had that eye in the sky. That's I think one that's, of the nice to me that's about, the no, number one thing. Exactly. That's one of the nice things about these upstart leagues is you can kind of uh, and I think that will be both those leagues' lasting impacts is is some of the rule changes. Maybe maybe not the fourth and fifteen, but some of those rule changes will be tweaked or implemented at some point. Well, if you enjoy the show, please subscribe and rate the show on iTunes. We're available on your favorite directories iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Luminary, and TuneIn. And we'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.